Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifestingpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifesting Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Party Structure The question of the party structure in the urban areas presents quite different problems from that in the rural areas where a party is based. These relate to the problem of building and running stable structures, the continuity of party leadership, the coordination between open and secret work, between lower and higher bodies, and between the city organization and the leadership based in the rural areas. We cannot resolve these problems without the close attention and study by the higher level bodies and the development of concrete and practical solutions. We also require, however, a broad common approach on the objectives, tasks, and methods to be adopted for building and advancing the urban party structure. The essential principle forming the basis of our party structure particularly in the urban area, is political centralization combined with organizational decentralization. This means that all PMs and all bodies, particularly at the lower level, should have solid ideological political foundations so that they are able to independently find their bearings and take the correct organizational decisions according to the political line of the party. This is particularly important in the urban areas because of the technical difficulties of maintaining close and constant links between the secret higher bodies and those at the lower levels engaged in direct open work. This is also important because urban work often demands immediate and quick responses to the events of the day. With rapid advances in the electronic communication and media, delays of days and sometimes even hours in politically reacting to major events can hinder the impact that our party can have on the urban movement. This thus depends on the strength of the bodies that form the foundation of our urban party structure, the cells and the lower-level committees, as well as on the party fractions that link the party with the mass organizations. 3.3.4.1 Party Cell The urban party cell can be formed on the basis of a unit of production, For workers, this could be the factory, shop, department, section, shift, production line, industrial estate, etc. And for students and middle-class employees, it could be the college, school, institution, office, etc. The cell can also be formed on a geographical basis, i.e. the place of residence. This would be the slum, chawl, street, society, etc. Wherever the number of PMs in a particular unit, e.g. a factory, is less than three, they can be combined with adjoining units to form a cell. However, this should not be done indiscriminately in the urban areas, as this would lead to unnecessary exposure. Where the work is integrated, a common cell may be formed. In other cases, it is better to wait for further recruitment before formation of a cell. 
The cell is the body leading all other organizational units within its sphere of responsibility. It performs its basic tasks under the leadership of the next higher committee. The basic tasks of the urban cell include organizing the masses, politicizing them, educating the advanced elements, and recruiting them into the party, and preparing its members and other activists to go to the countryside to work for the success of the agrarian revolution. The cell should develop its own secret network of shelters and meeting places. As far as possible, meetings should not be held in the areas where the members do their political work among the masses. Generally, cell members should not be transferred from cell to cell, as this would lead to unnecessary exposure. Where there are at least three professional revolutionaries, PRs, functioning in an area and are known to each other, a professional revolutionary cell, PRC, may be formed. The PRC, however, should not play the role of a party committee and become a center for planning the activity of the areas of all the PRs. This would result in unnecessary exposure of various structures and of areas of work and could lead to losses. For the purpose of work planning, each PR can be a member of the cell responsible for their area of work. Where this is not possible, the planning should be done with a concerned organizer or committee member. The main function of the PRC is to provide the political training and development to the PR, which would not be possible within the time constraints and other limitations of a part-timer cell. Longer political education programs, collective study and debate, and other similar activities can be conducted through the PRC. Thus it can play a positive role in rapidly developing the future party leadership. This advantage, however, should be balanced against the risks of exposure and losses in urban work. Thus, if a PR is functioning in an unexposed area, or if they show signs of vacillation, they should not be included in a PRC. 3.3.4.2 Part-Timer Party Committees Wherever there are two or more cells functioning in a particular locality or unit of production, we should take up the task of forming the Factory-slash-Industrial Area Party Committee, or Bastille Committee, or College Party Committee as the case may be. These may be composed completely of part-timers, or may include PRs or, in some cases, include organizer-level comrades. This is the level of party committee between the Area Committee-slash-organizer and the cells. It is the body that leads and guides all the cells candidate cells, party fractions, and other bodies within its field of responsibility. It is the body that ratifies the recruitment of candidate members and decides their full membership. The Factory Bastille Committee is a very important layer in the urban party structure. It improves party functioning by providing more day-to-day -day attention to the functioning of the party cells and other lower-level bodies. It also reduces the risk to higher-level committees by providing another layer and eliminating the need for the higher committee member to always meet all the cells. Despite its importance, we have not paid sufficient attention within our party to developing this layer in the urban areas. We have as yet very few areas where such committees have been created and our experience is thus very limited. The main aspects we should concentrate upon while setting up these committees is proper selection of reliable committee members. 
stress on setting up a proper secret network for shelters, communication in meetings, and extreme care not to expose the identity of the committee members to all the PMs. Where necessary, precautions may also be taken while reporting so that the actual identities of PMs and activists are protected. Generally, we should adopt a long-term approach towards building such committees and sustaining for a long period of time. A proper network of such committees can considerably improve the functioning of our urban party structure. 3.3.4.3 Party Fractions Besides the cells and the party committees, the party sets up fractions in various non-party organizations in order to ensure that members functioning within these organizations express a single will, pursue uniform tactics, and act in harmony. They are the agencies through which the party exercises influence over these organizations and carries through its policies. Since most of the work in the urban areas is done through non-party organizations, properly functioning fractions are a very important part of the urban party organization. They are necessary for uniting and coordinating the party forces within the non-party organizations and ensuring that they play a leading role. The relevant party committee may form fractions in any organization or executive body where there are at least three PMs. Where all the PMs are from a single cell, there is no need to form a separate fraction as all the functions of the fraction can be performed by the cell. Similarly, if the main forces within a particular organization or executive are in one cell or party committee, or due to some other practical considerations, the party committee may decide not to form a fraction. However, wherever the members are from various forums, or where the work of the organization is substantial, it is advantageous to form a fraction. The fraction functions under the guidance and supervision of the relevant party committee. Thus, the fraction within a factory trade union committee will function under the factory party committee, whereas the city-level trade union fraction will function under the party city committee. The relevant party committee decides to form the fraction with all or some of the PMs in that area. It also has the right to send PMs to the fraction and to recall any members of the fraction. Urban work may sometimes require that PMs who are very exposed and under surveillance be not included in the fraction forum, though they are playing a prominent role in the organization. This may also be necessary sometimes to protect the party identity of a comrade. In such cases, the party committee should devise special means and methods of coordinating with such comrades and seeing that they function in unison with the fraction and according to the direction decided upon. The party fraction guides the work of the organization in which it operates. All questions coming up in the organization in which it is operating are discussed in the fraction. All PMs must speak and vote within the organization in accordance with the decisions taken by the fraction. Similarly, it is the responsibility of the party committees to work through the fractions to see that the whole organization is guided according to a single policy and plan. 3.3.4.4 Layers Layers refers to the various levels in the urban party organization like city committees, area committees, factory, bastille, 
college committees, cells, candidate cells, as well as the links to the mass organizations like activist groups and fractions. Due to greater enemy threat in the urban areas, it is always necessary to maintain a number of layers from the lowest to the highest levels, and it is important to work through these layers without bypassing them. We have for some years now been stressing in our documents the need and the importance of functioning basically through layers. We have, however, not achieved much progress in this regard. Most city organizations have not concentrated on building sufficient layers, and even where some layers exist, there is a tendency to deal directly with the lowest levels in order to obtain quick results. We must quickly get rid of such wrong notions and practices and develop a system of layers in every city. The core question for functioning through layers is to see that each layer is trained and developed to independently perform the functions at the particular level. This requires the close guidance and follow-up of the next higher level. The guidance should be directed developing the independent capabilities of the comrades at that level, as well as the team functioning of the committee. This is the key to decentralized organizational functioning according to a centralized political line and policies. It is the only long-term approach to building a party structure that will preserve our cadre and leadership and develop the forces for the future. 3.3.4.5 Coordination and Links with Other Party Structures Most of our city work, particularly in the guerrilla zone areas, is coordinated and led from the rural areas. Even the DCM leading the city works is often based in the rural areas and periodically has to call the city comrades to the squad areas for discussing and planning the urban work. This results on the one hand in serious exposure problems, and on the other hand, to insufficient guidance without a deep understanding of the actual problems of the urban work. Coordination, therefore, is best done through a party structure of at least DC level that is based in the urban areas itself. In cities that are large enough and where the extent of the work in the party structure warrants it, the DC can be built in that city itself. In some states where the coordination problem is particularly acute due to repression, it can be done through a special subcommittee for urban work formed under the SC. Where the suitable leading comrades are very exposed, they could be allocated far away from their earlier areas, or even to other states. Another problem related to the urban party structure is the links within the rural party organization as well as the functional departments of the higher party bodies. There is often a need of urban help of various types, for which the urban organization involved in day-to-day -day mass work are regularly used. Such links on a regular basis is dangerous for all involved, and affects the regular functioning of the urban organization as well. Therefore, it is important to put a stop to such shortcut methods immediately. Separate structures not linked to the running urban organization should be set up in the cities for this purpose. Comrades can be transferred out of the urban organization and allocated these tasks. Here, too, what is basically required is a long-term approach. We must realize that it is only through the implementation of systematic and long-term plans that we can build the different structures required to mobilize the urban masses to provide logistical, 
and other help to the rural work, as well as for other requirements. 3.4 United Front The urban areas are the centers for struggle by various classes, under the leadership of several organizations representing them. It is essential that we unite with such struggling organizations and build up broad struggles against the ruling classes. Thus, a significant part of the party's work in the urban areas concerns joint front activity. This includes the formation of various tactical united fronts, as well as building the Worker-Peasant Alliance, which is the basis of the strategic united front. This extends from the task of building basic working-class unity, to solidarity with the peasantry, to unity with the other revolutionary classes, like the semi-proletariat and petite bourgeoisie, right up to maintaining relations and even joint activity with national bourgeois and even ruling class organizations. Let us look at the main forms of such united front activity. 3.4.1 Working Class Unity The working class is the main focus of the concentration of our work in the urban areas. Since the working class is in an extremely divided state today, a crucial party task is to build the broadest possible unity of the class. This task of unity is at two levels. One is to organize and unite the maximum possible numbers from the workers under genuine organizations that follow the democratic line and program. The other to build a broad workers united front against the present assault of the imperialist-backed bourgeoisie on the rights and economic conditions of the working class. This means taking the initiative, or joining in other initiatives, to build united struggles on various issues like contract system, change in labor laws, privatization, exit policy, etc. It also means working towards building united organizations with all genuine forces within the working class movement who are ready to work for a broad, anti-imperialist, anti-feudal program. Joint trade union fronts are important for increasing the fighting strength of the working class. These joint fronts may be issue-based or based on a minimum political understanding and program. They may be organized at various levels, industry, area, city, region, all India, and international. Our policy is to be ready for issue-based unity with even the reactionary and revisionist unions, if they have a mass following, and are ready to participate in the struggle. However, a decision for temporary unity should not be only to serve the needs of the moment, but also to advance the long-term aim of drawing the mass of workers towards the revolution. The legal democratic working class joint front organizations can play a very useful role in achieving this long-term objective. It is such organizations that form the democratic nucleus within the broader unity with the reactionaries. If these organizations function effectively, they can rally around larger sections of the working class on a democratic program. They can play the leading role within the broad issue-based united fronts. They can utilize the temporary alliances with the reactionary unions to serve the interests of the democratic program. They can inspire, mobilize, and unite the other revolutionary classes in the urban areas on an anti-feudal, anti-imperialist program. 3.4.1.1 Industry-Based Unity 
Due to the multiplicity of unions in India, in most industries there is very low possibility of achieving the quote, one industry, one union, unquote, principle. In such a situation, we should work for or support the next best option of forming coordination committees of the unions within a particular industry. We should try to draw all the unions with significant membership into such bodies. Such unity can start on an issue basis and can later advance to a more permanent minimum understanding. Similarly, it is necessary to unite the various factory-level unions within a particular company. Such unity can start at the coordination committee level or be formed as a federation. In the present globalization scenario, where the production in one country is easily transferred across international borders, international workers' unity is also very important and necessary. Such unity is today very weak. We should, however, support initiatives for building the international unity of workers within a single multinational or within a particular industry. Even where it is not possible to give the unity an organizational form, we should push for solidarity struggles and strikes and do propaganda in this regard. 3.4.1.2 Issue-Based Unity These are joint fronts of various unions and political organizations formed to oppose particular policies or actions of the government or to take up particular trade union, social, or political issues. Our approach in such joint fronts is to build the broadest possible struggling unity of all organizations that have a minimum common stand on the issue. At the same time, there should be no compromise on basic principles. Very often joint front bodies tend to become ineffective top-heavy bodies, or forums for endless debate. Our approach should be to see that the joint front builds the broadest possible unity of the masses and is not merely the joint front of a few leaders. The attempt should be to take the masses forward in militant struggle and politicize them in the process. We should within these fronts pay due attention to both unity and struggle. While the requirements of unity require some level of adjustment with the reformists, revisionists, and reactionaries, in the formulation of demands, we should constantly prepare the masses and struggle against any attempt by them to betray the struggle. When there is a wide range of different political forces within a joint front, we should establish coordination with those who have a closer common understanding so as to act in unison with a common approach and line of action. Such coordination can be on the basis of relations with other parties of the communist revolutionary camp or through existing legal democratic organizations having a common programmatic basis, or on any other basis. 3.4.1.3 Area-Based Unity This unity can be for an industrial area, town-slash-city, region, state, all India, etc. Unity in a particular industrial area or locality may be restricted to only putting up a common front against problems faced by the workers of the area, like gundas, transport, sanitation, water, etc. However, area unity at higher levels is normally based on some minimum political understanding. It is the unity of like-minded unions and other bodies who agree to struggle together to achieve a common set of demands or issues or stand by common political goals. 
This is thus the most common type of legal democratic workers' organization. We should give considerable importance to such a type of unity. In the present struggles against globalization, the scope and need for such unity is constantly growing. We should direct our efforts to make this unity as broad-based as possible by pushing for the regular and wide mobilization of the masses. At the same time, we should pay simultaneous attention to consolidating the activists emerging from these mobilizations. We should thus, while planning at the local level, allocate forces both for leading such fronts and organizations, as well as for the task of consolidation and party building within the movement. 3.4.1.4 Workers' Platforms Another form of uniting the working class on a political basis is to directly form legal democratic workers' organizations as forums or platforms with a minimum workers' program. Such platforms do not principally attempt to unite the unions, but target the worker activists of various unions and attempt to rally them politically. Such bodies use meetings, demonstrations, talks, seminars, cultural programs, and various means of propaganda to draw the advanced sections from among the workers on a political basis. They should also mobilize for agitations and struggles on political and other issues. The aim should be to draw the widest possible non-party forces who can be united around the program. Another variation of this form is to use the banner of a workers' cultural organization or workers' magazine as a platform for unity. Here, the program of the platform is widely propagated and worker activists encourage to perform cultural programs or to write articles and reports for the magazine, to distribute it, etc., and to participate in preparing and mobilizing the masses in struggles. There are thus various forms of uniting the worker masses. We cannot, of course, attempt to implement all forms in a particular area. The relevant committee should therefore decide on the suitable methods depending on the objective situation in their area and the subjective forces available. What is important, however, is to recognize the importance of this task, particularly during the present upsurge of workers' struggles, and therefore to allocate necessary forces for it. 3.4.2 Worker-Peasant Alliance This is the basis of the four-class strategic united front, and we should therefore work towards building and strengthening this alliance right from the very beginning. The aim is to generate workers' support to the peasant struggles and build up the closest possible links between the two most important classes of the democratic revolution. The work of building and strengthening the worker-peasant alliance should be taken up from all areas of our working-class work. The stress on particular aspects may however differ according to the area of work. Thus, in metropolitan cities somewhat delinked from the rural areas and from the agrarian struggle, a major concentration will be on continuous education and propaganda to raise the consciousness of the workers. In the towns in and near the guerrilla zones where the worker and peasant masses are closely linked, the focus can be on concrete issues and practical help to the movement. Various organizations also perform different roles. The Revolutionary Workers' Organization has a particularly important role to play. It has to take on the main responsibility of propaganda and agitation 
regarding the agrarian war. Constant and continued propaganda regarding the progress of the rural movement, the victories achieved, and the repression it faces, and the need for solidarity of the workers with this movement should be an essential part of the work of this organization. Since the organization has to normally function secretly, it will not be possible to organize open solidarity demonstrations by the workers. However, the revolutionary organization activists can use the method of secret shock actions for propaganda purposes to highlight issues concerning the agrarian struggle. The legal democratic worker organizations can be the forums through which open mobilizations of the workers are organized. Forms of such mobilizations can extend from signature campaigns to solidarity demonstrations and protest actions. These should be organized in support of the revolutionary movement as well as the peasant struggles led by non-revolutionary organizations. We should, however, not organize open demonstrations in support of our movement if we expect the mobilization to be low, as it will only result in the exposure of our forces. We should, in fact, plan such actions in order to mobilize non-party forces in large numbers. Another type of program, which can be taken up through the legal democratic organizations, is large joint mobilizations of workers and peasants on common issues like the WTO, state repression, etc. Worker-peasant alliance work can also be taken up through the trade unions. Where possible, they can mobilize and participate in the programs of the legal democratic organization, with or without its own banner. Depending on the cover, other programs can also be taken up, like education regarding the exploitation and repression in the backward rural areas, aid teams during disasters, support statements for peasant struggles of various organizations, etc. The Industrial Party Committee should regularly pay attention to and follow up on the implementation of such tasks. Depending on changes in the situation, new and more creative methods should be worked out. Party statements and calls to the workers should be issued when the situation demands. However, whatever the level of worker-peasant alliance activity possible, it holds central importance in our united front tasks. It should not be neglected, given secondary importance, or subordinated to the other united front tasks in the city. 3.4.3 Unity of the Urban Exploited Classes Besides the working class, the other exploited classes and sections of the urban areas include the semi-proletariat, the urban poor concentrated in the slums, the students, teachers, employees, and other sections of the middle classes, etc. The party sends its cadre to organize and lead the mass organizations of all these classes. This, however, is not the only way by which the working class and its party unites and provides leadership to all these classes. Solidarity struggles and united front activity are the important means by which the working class inspires and leads all other classes in struggle. Propaganda and agitation on issues and incidents of repression on various other urban classes are the main means by which the working class and the party expresses its solidarity with the affected sections. Issues can be of several types. The eviction of hawkers, demolition of slums, suppression of student rights, funds for teachers' salaries, etc.
While it may not be possible to hold a solidarity action on every such issue, the party should be ever alive and respond in whatever manner possible. Propaganda pamphlet, poster, press statement, or darna, demonstration, or some more militant action. Our main effort, however, should always be to draw the masses of workers out in solidarity. The other medium through which the Urban United Front is built is through joint forces on various issues concerning the general mass of the urban population, like price rise, corruption, closure of a key industry or many industries, or various urban problems like water shortage, commuter problems, sanitation issues, etc. Such issues unite all classes, but mainly involve the exploited sections. The joint fronts on such issues may be issue-based, or may be built as legal democratic organizations on a political basis, linking the issue to the democratic program. Such tactical united fronts draw larger sections of the urban masses closer to the revolution and pave the way for bringing them into the purview of the strategic united front. 3.4.3.1 Unity with the Semi-Proletariat The semi-proletariat, living in extremely poor conditions, is the urban class with the greatest potential for unity with the proletariat. In recent years, the new economic policies have led to a steep rise in their numbers. Many workers are being thrown into the ranks of the semi-proletariat, and many rural migrants who come in search of jobs end up in petty trades or in doing sundry odd jobs. Because of their dispersed nature, they are not as well organized as the proletariat. It is therefore the task of the party to organize this class and build about its close unity with the industrial workers. A. Trade Unions of the Semi-Proletariat In many towns and cities, these sections remain completely unorganized. According to our subjective forces and town plan, we can take up the task of building their organizations. Hawkers unions, headloaders and hamal unions and panchayets, rickshaw puller unions, auto rickshaw and taxi drivers slash owner unions, rag picker unions, are some of the organizations that can be formed. Since the capitalist class does not directly employ the semi-proletariat, the enemy is normally the state through the various government authorities, municipal bodies, etc. Issues concern harassment and corruption of officials, imposition of unjust taxes, fights for increase in rates, fights against eviction, etc. Some sections like market hamals and rag pickers have demands directed against particular groups like traders, scrap dealers, etc. Due to the dispersed nature of the workforce and the lack of a proletarian sense of organization, building the unity of these sections is a painstaking and full-time task. However, once organized, they prove to be militant fighters. In most towns and cities where these sections remain unorganized, work in these sections will involve the setting up of cover unions. In the large cities where they are already organized, we can take up fractional work. B. Solidarity with the semi-proletariat. In many large cities, particularly those aspiring to become, quote, global, unquote, cities, some major sections of the semi-proletariat are under heavy attack. Hawkers particularly face intensive eviction drives and harassment of officials. Auto rickshaws and taxis are accused of pollution. 
The courts, anti-people environmentalists, and the reactionary media are also targeting them. They are accused of obstructing the drives of these elements for, quote, clean and green, unquote, cities. Though they fight militantly, they are often isolated in their battles. It is therefore of utmost importance that the workers' union should express solidarity with hawkers and such other sections. The legal democratic workers' organizations, too, should organize campaigns in their support and expose the anti-poor urban plans of the development authorities and imperialist agencies. Another area of unity of the workers and the semi-proletariat is in slum work. These two classes are the main sections of the urban poor who live in the slums and poor localities. Besides the Basti struggles where both classes fight side by side, the trade unions and other worker organizations should also organize solidarity actions. Where possible, alliances to oppose the current reactionary trend of urban development should also be set up, involving slum-dweller associations, hawkers' organizations, trade unions, and even groups of progressive professionals and intellectuals. While uniting all directly affected sections, they should also aim to educate the middle-class sections who are inclined to get misled by the, quote, clean and green, unquote, propaganda of the ruling classes. The aim should be to build a broad unity of all exploited sections against the anti-people programs of globalization. 3.4.3.2 White-Collar Employees The rapid spread of computerization and automation in modern industry an increasing share of the services sector in the economy, has resulted in a significant increase in the number and proportion of white-collar employees. A large number of them are in the public sector, and they are mostly unionized. Examples are the unions of the banks, insurance companies, teachers, government employees, etc. There has also been a more recent growth of unions and associations of higher-level employees-slash-professionals like electricians, telecommunications, and other department engineers, resident doctors, pilots, etc. Many of the above unions are powerful and have shown their ability to hit and paralyze the economy. While all the white-collar employees are reliable allies of the working class in the revolution, certain sections sometimes tail the bourgeoisie and become victims of reactionary propaganda. It is therefore necessary for the industrial proletariat to always maintain close links with the employee's section and lead it away from the vacillations in the class struggle. In all industries and enterprises, we should therefore always struggle for the unity of both white-collar and blue-collar sections into one union. We should generally oppose the backward practice of having separate, quote, workers, unquote, and, quote, employees, unquote, unions. Where separate unions exist, however, we should, where possible, allocate forces for fractional work within them. In the globalization period, the ruling classes have launched a concentrated propaganda attack against this section as an overpaid, underworked section whose salaries and numbers should be reduced. Thus, some sections are being forced to agree to very meager rises in salary and cuts in earlier allowances. They have also been the target of various privatization and VRS schemes. Though they have been struggling continuously, they often do not receive the sympathy and support of other sections. 
are workers' unions, legal democratic and secret workers' organizations, and sometimes even the party, should make it a point to express solidarity in various ways with the struggles of the bank employees, teachers, journalists, etc. When joint trade union bodies are formed at the town city level, we should try to draw in all the local branches of the employee unions. This can help in organizing joint programs and mutual solidarity during times of repression and struggle. 3.4.3.3 Other Sections of the Petite Bourgeoisie Some section or the other of the Petite Bourgeoisie is often in struggle. The students come out in agitations, the lawyers resort to strikes, the shopkeepers also have their protests and bans. When these struggles take a militant turn, they face the attacks of the state. The working class should be alive to the struggles of these sections. We should, through the trade unions, legal democratic organizations, and even the party, express solidarity. Where possible, we should not restrict ourselves merely to statements of support. During major struggles and repression, we should make all attempts to mobilize the workers in large numbers to come out on the streets in support. Where there is sufficient support, we should attempt to widen the scope of the issue and involve as many sections as possible in support. Among the urban petite bourgeoisie students and youth constitute an important category. They react to the events and historically from the anti-British movement, they played a significant role. In the wake of Naxalbari, their role is exemplary. Our party has a good experience in organizing them. While working in urban areas, we must pay necessary attention to organize them. There is the need to emphasize the necessity of uniting with intellectuals. We need to allot sufficient cadre to work among them and put some special effort to be united and organize them. 3.4.4 Relations with the National Bourgeoisie Due to the vacillating and exploitive nature of the national bourgeoisie, its wide participation in the strategic united front generally takes place only at later stages in the revolution. However, there is potential in the urban areas for supporting or uniting with various sections of the national bourgeoisie in tactical united fronts. A large part of our working class work is in the small industries of the national bourgeoisie and the unorganized sector. They are often the immediate enemies of the workers that we organize. It is thus often difficult for the mass of workers to accept the concept of support or unity with these exploiters and, quote, enemies, unquote. It is, however, a reality that the national bourgeoisie is coming out in struggle against the government, imperialism, and the CBB. We should render all support to them in this struggle, and wherever possible, even unite to wage common battle against the ruling classes. A normal method of uniting with the national bourgeoisie is for the party to directly or indirectly, through some mass organization, declare support to the demands and struggles of the national bourgeoisie against the government, imperialism, and or the comprador bourgeoisie. This can be on various issues like reduction of taxes, cut in electricity rates, anti-small industry policies and court decisions, protest against entry of multinationals and foreign goods, exploitation of ancillary producers by big industry, etc. 
Our support can take the form of propaganda or even extend to militant mobilizing of workers on the issue. Another mode of unity could be through joint front bodies with national bourgeois organizations. Mostly such unity will be issue-based like preventing relocation or closure of industries, opposing anti-small industry laws and tax increases, etc. However, as the anti-globalization and anti-WTO movement picks up, we will have to try our best to draw the more progressive sections and organizations of the national bourgeoisie into the movement. While making efforts in bringing the national bourgeoisie to oppose imperialism, such unity can on no account be achieved at the cost of the basic classes within the united front. Thus, while uniting with the national bourgeoisie, we should never lose sight of the struggle aspect of our relationship with them. We should not have any misconception that unity with the national bourgeoisie implies concessions in trade union struggles with these sections. All such issues will be decided according to the normal principles of trade union struggle and will basically depend on the relative strength of the contending forces and the overall conditions of the industry where the struggle is taking place. It is the strength of the working class and not its weakness that will be the force attracting the national bourgeoisie to the front. The ceaseless attacks of the imperialists and their Indian agents are daily pushing the national bourgeoisie into more conflict with the ruling classes. Thus today, the practical possibilities of unity from below are growing. These possibilities are greater in cities with a stronger national bourgeois presence, like the Delhi Belt, the Coimbatore Road Belt in Tamil Nadu, Surat and Gujarat, etc. Local party organizations should utilize such opportunities where possible, while keeping in mind the above principles. 3.4.5 Front Against Repression The PR and POR adopted by the 9th Congress have given the call to mobilize the masses against the fascist repression of the ruling classes and against the black laws. All sections of the masses in the urban areas face the brunt of this repression and stand opposed to it. It is therefore the task of the party in the urban areas to unite all forces that are ready to wage militant struggles to oppose these policies and build a broad democratic movement against repression. The organizations that most consistently oppose state repression and black laws are the various civil liberties organizations active in different parts of the country. We can work to some extent through them. They, however, have a poor mass base and limited political program. Thus, while we should work to broaden and strengthen such organizations, they cannot be the only forums for building the front against repression. Fronts against particular black laws like POTA have the potential of uniting the widest sections. We should initiate or might join such fronts with our own program. Since such fronts are formed at various levels, we can intervene in different fronts through separate cover organizations suited for such work. Some of these fronts, however, have various ruling class forces and parties with a long record of suppressing people's movements. We should therefore decide on our participation only if we are able to conduct vigorous exposure of such opportunist forces. Since such exposure is normally only possible at the lower levels, we should not participate at the higher levels, where we would only become a pawn of such forces. Another excellent form of building broad fighting unity against repression is to take up particular cases of brutal state repression 
and immediately mobilize all sections of the masses in militant struggle. Police firings, lockup deaths, rape by security forces are some of the examples that can be used to rouse the masses into open battle. There have been many instances like the Ramiza B case and others where such incidents proved to be the turning points for building not only militant struggle, but also much broader democratic movements. In some cases, where the above methods lead to broad movements, we can work with others for the formation of organizations of a more long-term nature with a broad anti-fascist repression program. 3.4.6 United Front Against Hindu Fascist Forces An important call of the 9th Congress is to build a broad UF of all secular forces and persecuted religious minorities, such as Muslims, Christians, and Sikhs, against the Hindu fascist forces. Since a large proportion of the minorities are urbanized, and since the attacks of the Hindu fascists are as yet mostly concentrated in the cities, this UF has basically been the responsibility of the urban organization. This task has appeared in our documents now for many years, but very little has as yet been done. One of the explanations for this failure is the weakness of our urban organizations, but the other more important reason is our neglect of work among the minorities. The above UF cannot be built merely by uniting some secular individuals on the basis of a political program. In order to be effective, it has to involve the masses, particularly the masses from the minorities. This therefore means that we must have substantial grassroots work among the minorities, particularly the Muslim masses, who are the most numerous and the worst victims of the Hindu fascist atrocities. However, due to extreme ghettoization in almost all Indian cities, this is only possible if we take a conscious decision to shift out at least some forces from Hindu-dominated areas and base them in the slums and localities inhabited by the Muslim poor. This would be the first step to building any united front. The actual UF organizations would generally be in the form of legal democratic bodies, uniting various genuine secular forces, as well as organizations of the persecuted minorities. Such organizations should have a program basically targeting the Hindu fascist organizations and aiming to unite the masses of all communities. We should on this basis conduct propaganda and agitation among both minority and majority sections and attempt to unite the many to isolate and defeat the few Hindu fascist diehards. Booklets and other propaganda aids explaining the organization's stance and exposing the fascist organization's positions should be used. In areas with a history of communal conflicts, genuine peace committees, Mohalla committees, and all community protection teams should be set up. Issue-based joint front organizations can also be built. These could be to fight for the punishment of the perpetrators of pogroms on the minorities, to oppose Hindu communal legislation, to fight against the saffronization of education, etc. These fronts too should have a mass approach and attempt to widely mobilize secular sections as well as those most affected. As the Hindu fascists push ahead with their agenda, the task of building this UF becomes all the more urgent. All urban organizations should plan concretely to bring this into practice. 3.4.7 Front Against Globalization, 
liberalization, and privatization. This also is a call of the Ninth Congress, whose implementation requires considerable efforts by the party organization in the urban areas. As the globalization policies are impacting all sections of the urban masses, discontent is growing, and there is great potential for the urban areas to become powerful centers of anti-imperialist struggles. Though the struggles have not yet reached the heights of the anti-capitalism and anti-globalization protests in many cities around the world, the movement in India also is growing. The industrial working class is the leading force in these struggles, with numerous demonstrations, rallies, bans, and long-drawn-out strikes against privatization, changes in labor laws, contract system, exit policy, and other aspects of the globalization policies. These struggles, which took an upturn from the year 2000, have not only been increasing in size and intensity, but also have been taking clear political positions against the WTO, against globalization, and even against imperialism. The line of action for building anti-globalization fronts should thus rely primarily on the working class, while rallying around all other sections in the struggles against the imperialist policies. Thus, we should aim at drawing the different working class fronts against the various anti-worker policies into the front against globalization. Similarly, the anti-globalization fronts should consciously give importance to the workers' issues in their programs. Other classes and sections of importance we should try to draw into the anti-globalization front are the peasant organizations and the farmers' bodies, slum bodies, student organizations, intellectuals, writers and cultural activists, pro-people environmental groups, teachers, and other middle-class employees' associations, etc. The scope of the anti-globalization movement is so large that it includes practically all classes who are a part of the strategic UF. While the separate organizations formed by these sections against various aspects of globalization objectively form part of the movement, we should nevertheless try to draw all such organizations into common united struggle on a common anti-imperialist program. Reactionaries like Swadeshi Jagran Manch, revisionists like CPI, CPIM, and foreign-funded NGOs are some of the forces involved in the anti-globalization movement. These forces are linked to the ruling classes or part of them. We must keep away from the reactionaries in any joint front. In regards to the revisionists who are part of ruling classes, we ourselves should not invite them into any joint front. But if they are part of a front called by others, we need keep away because of their presence. The revisionists and foreign-funded NGOs may participate to some extent, but there is always a danger of them attempting to sabotage the movement at higher levels of struggles. We must be alert to this danger. The front against globalization has the potential to encompass a wide range of forces. The urban party organization should thus plan concretely to participate more effectively in this movement. 3.5, Military Tasks. As explained earlier, the urban movement plays a secondary and complementary role in the military strategy of the revolution. While the PGA and PLA in the countryside perform the main military tasks, the urban organization also performs tasks complementary to the rural armed struggle. Due to the spread of urbanization, the growth of a number of megacities, and the sharper division of the cities into rich and poor sections, 
the possibility and importance of urban military operations increases. These, however, yet remain second to the rural military tasks. The varied military tasks performed in the urban areas relate to, one, the defense of the urban movement, two, help by the urban organization to the rural armed struggle, and three, direct military operations conducted under central direction. These thus form the main categories of military tasks and forms of organization in the urban areas. 3.5.1 Defense of the Urban Movement The nature of urban work being primarily legal and defensive, the military tasks directly related to the urban movement are basically defensive in nature, and will remain that way until the final period of the revolution. However, even a defensive urban movement requires the military-type organization of the armed defense of the urban masses against the people's enemies. These enemies are of various types. Gunda gangs acting in the service of the ruling classes, Hindu fascist organizations and their militias, vigilante gangs specifically organized by the state to attack activists and sympathizers of our movement, state forces themselves, etc. Without standing up to such forces, it would not be possible for an organization to survive and develop. While we cannot and should not, at this stage, organize for armed offensive confrontation with the state, we should definitely build such defense organizations as are suited to the concrete situation. 3.5.1.1 Open Self-Defense Teams Wherever necessary, the legal organization should organize defense against the local enemies. Examples of such self-defense teams are union self-defense against lump and strike breakers, Basti self-defense teams against Gunda gangs, Mahila organization self-defense teams against Eve teasers and molesters, Mohalla all-community self-defense during communal riot situations, mass self-defense against slum demolition, etc., Open self-defense teams should be organized in such a way as to mobilize sizable sections of the masses in this task, particularly motivating the youth to participate in large numbers. When such defense is organized by systematically involving the broad masses, it greatly strengthens the legal organization, gives confidence to the rank and file of the local leadership, and releases the creative energies of the masses. If such activity grows in an area, it gives rise to new creative forms of militant mass fighting. Conversely, it demoralizes and paralyzes the enemy and prevents him from using his old forms of repression. Often, such open self-defense is organized on a temporary basis for a particular situation or period. However, wherever possible, we should plan and attempt to give this mass self-defense a permanent form and structure allocating specific responsibilities, and linking with the mass organizational committees. Such bodies can run via yamshalas, martial arts centers, sports clubs, etc.